Hi, everyone. Welcome to This Much I Know, the Seedcamp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. Welcome, everyone. Today, we have an exciting guest, and that's because it's our very own Natasha Litton, who heads up our marketing efforts and communications efforts within Seedcamp, but she does a hell of a lot more than that. And one of the things that she does is she helps a lot of our portfolio companies thinking through their own communication strategies and marketing strategies. And as we've discussed in the past, some of these resolve um, around issues like branding and, and go to market and marketing campaigns. But the issue is deeper than that, because sometimes when you bring in somebody externally and they give you this great feedback about your brand and what it represents and the culture, implementing it is actually 99% the work and 1% was all this inspiration that came through. And so I had a chat with Natasha and I said, you know, nobody's really cracked this sort of guerrilla implementation of marketing and branding and a lot of these workshops that people have around culture. And so she said, I think we can do this as a podcast. And so voila, this is what we have today. So welcome to the podcast, Natasha. Hello. So, um, let's kick off with the most obvious question, which is, what do you do at Seed Camp? And tell us a little bit about you. Sure. So, I think you've done a pretty great introduction so far. So, I'm here working across the Seed Camp brand, all of our sort of marketing and communications efforts, and then as a support to the portfolio companies as mm-hmm. well. And it was, as you know, a great transition for me joining Seed Camp because I was CMO at a Seed Camp backed company. Um, called Pronto before I joined. Um, my background had been in various CMO roles across mainly in the FMCG, food and beverage, and then food tech sectors. And then it seemed, you know, a really natural transition for me to come over here to be able to work with a really broad section of early stage companies, having seen those pain points quite a few times, the same problems coming up, you know, again and again, I was being brought into companies about 18 months into their life cycle, whereby there was a functioning product, but really nobody that had put any real emphasis or thought into the brand, who they were targeting, what they stood for, what their position in the market was, and then how they could make that product really fly and be something that people were going to want to purchase or engage with and interact with. Cool. Um, I think I mentioned this to you yesterday when we were preparing for this, that one of our uh, original investors and chairman uh, saw a client was telling us at, at one session, maybe three years ago, he said, this whole part of a company that the marketing slash uh, branding element is one of the most neglected ele- elements of a company's development, either because it's the easiest thing perceptionally and therefore it gets delayed or the hardest one. And therefore you have analysis paralysis. So in the spirit of what the purpose of this podcast is, what is the first thing that you recommend when you work with a company that they tackle before you really start going down this path of, of marketing? Sure. I guess actually first and foremost, it's a mindset and it's believing in the importance of brand and investing in that. I think, you know, uh, almost half of the value of the world's listed companies lies in intangibles. And it can be incredibly hard, especially in our sort of world. And for an early stage founder who's not got a huge amount of capital to think about why they should invest in this intangible seeming brand thing when they don't have the money. But I believe it is truly important. And that's because it 
drives and creates an emotional connection with the people you're trying to target. And essentially, it drives commercial growth. So the first thing that I do whenever I'm joining a company um, or I'm working with a startup or any brand for that matter on their brand strategy and how they can drive growth is understanding who they are, what the hell it is they do and who they do it for. You'd be amazed the amount of times I've run workshops with startups and I've had everybody come into the room and I've asked them individually to write down what it is they do and why they do it and to stick those up on the board. I am yet to find a single company come in and for the entire team internally to be aligned around those two points. So for me, that's the crux of where you start because it's really important in terms of you know, defining what it is you guys are doing and getting everybody rallied around that. Um, I think one of the things, you know, we talk a lot about purpose. That's something that can seem a bit lofty. I think people can get quite, you know, gripped on this idea of we've got this really far reaching purpose, but it can be too many steps removed away from the reality of what it is you're doing in the here and now. So it's really important to take a step back from that and be able to think around how you bridge that gap. So a really good example of that is what we did at Pronto. So Pronto was a full service food technology business, essentially an online restaurant whereby we would deliver food that you would order from us uh, within, you know, 20-ish minutes. We were doing the whole end-to-end piece from the sourcing and the supply to the delivery, the cooking, the technology, delivering it to you. I mean, everything and anything we were doing. And the mission for this business was to be able to provide a global food infrastructure where anybody anywhere could access quality, affordable, healthy food at the touch of a button. Great. Doesn't mean anything to you as a customer trying to purchase that product here and now, nor speak to the reality of what we could actually deliver at that point, which was, you know, we wanted to feed the world, but we could barely, you know, cover all of zone one. So what we had to do was find a consumer facing iteration of that, that could, you know, resonate with people for here and now. So that became feeding London because it was real. You know, you talk about the Ron Seal test, does it do what it says on the tin. And and that really did. It was feeding London. It gave us scope to grow so that one day, you know, hopefully we could be feeding Berlin, feeding Amsterdam, feeding Manchester, and then perhaps feeding the world. But it gave us a really, you know, great way to bridge that gap between a lofty purpose and a here and now. And it led also really nicely into a lot of our creative execution as well. So when we were doing our competitive you know market research and our landscape analysis we were looking at all of the brands in this space whether you were Deliveroo or HelloFresh or Sainsbury's and everyone at that time was showing you top-down photos of lovely looking food but there was nothing really ownable across any of those brands within any of this and we thought well that's not us like we're bold we're really strident in the sort of people that we are and the type of brand that we want to create and We've got a problem because we're very early stage and that we're not 100% sure yet who our customer is or what the potential of that customer to be is because we're so limited by our hyperlocality. So let's turn that into a positive and let's use people in our campaign and let's show the makeup of what feeding London actually looks like. So for us, it was about doing some experimentation in terms of what was resonating in terms of the types of personas that we could use, as well as having a bit of fun and trying to do something that was differentiated to what was a really crowded and noisy landscape around us. 
So I know that you have a couple of other examples that you can use to answer this question. So maybe, maybe we can we can do that. But as I was hearing what you were saying, a few things popped up in my head. First of all, I miss the pronto salmon teriyaki. That was so good. You're our um, best customer. <laughs> so good. I that. There needs to be some sort of reunion where they recook those meals. But um, I remember that there was quite a bit of internal debate about this customer segment and it was very unclear for a long time as to who that customer segment was. And the way you've articulated, I think, smooths over maybe some of the bumps in the journey of discovering mm-hmm. that and maybe in a way of, of articulating something very succinctly in a podcast, we, we lose some of the nuance of some internal battles that you had with, with the founders and, and in trying to get to this process. So maybe what you can do is either with Pronto or with, with some of the other examples that you, you you have, walk us through the nitty gritty of that process. Because let's say somebody came in, did a brand consultancy, got a lot of the 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 thought out of the team about what you stand for, what would you like to be, and you came up with this nice brand brief, mm-hmm. right? And the consultant leaves the building and you left with this amazingly succinct brand brief that represents you accurately. But now you have to like roll that out. And you have to roll that around a confusing user base who you don't quite yet know and an evolving product in a highly competitive space. And maybe you can help the listener to think through how to tackle that. Sure. Um, you're, you're entirely right. Pronto was incredibly difficult to pinpoint exactly who the customer was. And I think there's often a real discrepancy between the customer you want to have and the customer that you actually have. And Pronto for sure that we had that problem. You know, we were available to purchase via our own site, but then also across a number of third parties, companies like Seamless, which was all city bankers, you know, there in their office in the evening. And we were like, we don't want to be this brand just for the bankers. It's for everybody. It's so that everyone can access affordable quality food. And, you know, let's create something around that. But we were so restricted by the fact we were mainly available in the city and targeting that customer. They're actually, we had to think of creative solutions around that as we could grow. So one example of that was in some of the activity we were planning that really sadly we never got a chance to fully bring to life, which I'm still gutted about. Um, but as we were growing and expanding our delivery zones and areas, we were really conscious of the different potential customers we were going to be coming into contact with and thinking about how we could create something from, you know, the product offering to the types of food that was going to resonate with that type of customer. So, you know, for example, let me stop you there. You have these, all these great ideas, right? And they came from how to tackle all these different customer segments, Mm -hmm. but let's, let's go down even further. First of all, how did you find out what's, what customers you have? So like there must've been a process by which to deduce from your, data, who your customers were. Then you had this marketing brief or this brand brief that, well, maybe you created it, but let's pretend for a second consultant created it. And now you were like, how do I take this message, Mm -hmm. apply it to this group of people who are the current customers, but maybe not the ideal ones. How do I tweak it to like these other ones? Mm -hmm. And how do I then run it 
creatively and quantitatively to get the results I want to where I want to be. So we were doing lots of experimentation across everything from our funnel to our acquisition drive to our Facebook advertising to the message, the type of images that you were seeing to help us try and start to piece together some of those points. But it was really hard because of all of the sort of you know areas we talk about. In fact, it was the polar opposite to what I had at Southsay, the smoothie business where I was CMO there prior to Pronto. You know, there we... And in the strategy that I created there, it was incredibly clear who target audience number one was. She was the fit fashionista. And that was the customer that we wanted to target. And we knew exactly where she was. We knew the type of character that she was. And we knew the sort of things that we needed to do in order to get to her. Now, by no means is your primary target going to be the only one. But at the beginning, you've really got to think, you know, who is that one customer that we need to attract? And then who are the others that will follow afterwards? And, you know, with this Fit Fashionista, it impacted everything from the type of bottle mold that we created, knowing that it would be immediately Instagrammable because this is where that customer was, to the types of product innovation that we did. We were the first ever juice brand to create a protein-based juice using HPP, which was the preservation method we used. We worked with an up-and-coming nutritionist, food blogger, yoga instructor called Madeline Shaw. All of these things were specifically targeted around that core customer that we knew we wanted to achieve, and, and it really worked. We ended up becoming the fastest growing, you know, smoothie brand in the UK, which was really testament to the fact that we had identified this customer that we wanted to go after and we really created a solid strategy with lots of different activations and activity based predominantly around targeting that individual. All right, so let's let's maybe move away from the Pronto example as you did partially because it was a bit well it, it Pronto was yeah, it folded and so you know that was part of the on, problem. Let's let's pick on South Say since they're A still around and yeah. B it sounds like it was a lot crisper. Yeah. So let, let's let's from a point of view of explaining this to somebody who's doing this for the first time, mm-hmm. let's go through that sequentially. Yeah. First of all, when you were describing the customer, you were very certain that that was the customer. Mm. Now, was that customer identified accidentally and then you optimized the brand around it? Or was it the founder decided that they had in mind the needs of the specific customer and from the very beginning created a brand image and, and identity and values and all that stuff to f- fulfill that? No. So... Pronto, uh, Savse, sorry, we went over and we entirely rebranded um, from the bottle mold to the logo to everything to fit around that customer because it was the market analysis and research at the time and looking at the competitive landscape that showed us really this is where the opportunity was. Okay, so what was that original one then? What was, prior to you coming in and researching? It was family friendly. It family friendly. was mum's brand. Was it was. Um, it, there was definitely a connection. It was Nina Savse because the whole story around Savse was it was that the founder's mum would make vegetable and fruit smoothies for the kids when they were younger and hide the vegetables, mask the flavor with the fruit as a way of getting nutrients into her children. So that was very much the origin, family friendly. And there was, you know, as well, you, you always talk about like mums, they're the perceived as the ones that are in the supermarkets doing the main shop. But there's a big shift and a, and a sea change in what's been happening in terms of, you know, who is purchasing things, the on-the-go sort of market as well and all the different retailers and places where you can consume products these days. So that needed to shift as well. Um, right, so you, you guys came, you, you came in or maybe you yeah. and others came in and 
and you saw that and you said, it's not working. Yeah. Why, why did you know it was not working? Because we weren't getting listings. We were in a crazily competitive landscape. You know, this is back listings in, is defined by listings is sorry, getting uh, major retailers nationwide uh, retailers to list your product in the supermarket, and you're mm. there. You're competing against the likes of Innocent, you know, backed by Coca Cola, really mm. big companies who've got a lot of marketing spend to put behind these retailers mm. to ensure that the product's gonna sell. Right, so you came in and you said. Did you set yourself a timeline for like the moment you were not getting listings to the moment you were going to get listings? Is it like a in eight months, my goal is to get listed? That's near impossible because of the buying windows in these sort of retailers. They're slow beasts mm. compared to, you know, a lot of, especially when you're looking at technology, a couple of them, they'll have a buying window twice a year mm. and they play a lot of games. They'll move the buyers around so that mm. you're not allowed to really form a strong relationship. Mm. So when I was there and I remember it was, you know, a month or two into my starting and I went to a meeting with Waitrose mm. and I remember talking to them and they were just like, well, why is your brand going to be any different? anyone else's so it's like right we've got to do something here we've got to bring somebody in that gives us clout and credibility and that's going to speak to this customer and that's going to drive people in store because but what did waitress specify this fit fashionista or did you i mentioned make... somebody that we'd been this woman madeline shaw mm-hmm. who we'd started conversations with mm-hmm. and i could see it piqued their interest mm-hmm. it's all you know it's really interesting when right, you're so you left you left that you piqued their interest you went back and you said guys i have an idea yeah, we were just like, we've really got to make this Madeline thing happen. And then as well, when we were doing our research, we were looking at, you know, the value in the protein market back then. Again, you know, this is 2014 we're talking about. No one was really doing protein stuff well in the UK at that point. And we were just like, there's a huge opportunity here. It's something that we can use as a pull for Madeline because we can create this in partnership with her. She's got this amazing online community, but she's not got an offline product. So it's going to be a real draw for her. It gives us ownership to be the first in a category and it gives us new product, you know, NPD, new product development, new SKUs to add to our range and something that we know is going to resonate with this fit fashionista audience who we see to be this really disproportionately influential customer. All right. So if I take stock of where we are in the story right now, Mm. you come in, there's a company who's had a family product that's kind of distressed, can't get the right listings. You've identified this. You've seen that there's a potential opportunity in this sort of fit fashionista not only in terms of product, but also in terms of customer segment. But now you need to convince the entire team to shift their mindset, their culture, their brand identity, their messaging, and all that in a limited time period to get the company listed. How did you do that without having a civil war internally? Um, I, it, You know, it wasn't easy and it took time to... Did any people leave? Um... Some not as a result of that uh-huh. shift. No, there's always people coming and going in yeah. startups. Let's be honest. People left a lot. Mm. Um, and it was not the easiest mm. environment to be in. But yeah. if you could make a go of things, you know, I was fortunate there to have the support of the founder um, mm. in that respect that, mm. you know, this was my marketing strategy that we were going to live by that he was bought into. And then it was team, this is what we're doing. This is why you guys all need to get on board. And then, you know, to be honest, it then bled into so many, you know, assets and things for us to use that then it was beneficial for the whole company, for the sales team, for everybody else. There must have been, because right now you're skipping a step, sorry. Mm -hmm. I'm still at the the internal politics of 
of restructuring a brand, right? Yeah. Because in effect, in any startup, especially early on, mm. the founders may or may not have thought about it. Yeah. But the moment you start crystallizing something, another founder might disagree. Yeah. Right. And they might disagree for absolutely no logical reason other than emotional ones. Mm. And with a brand like Safse, which had this baggage, if you will, yeah. or, or, or sort of heritage, maybe is probably yeah. a better word, of this family facing brand. Mm. There must have been some people who were like, whoa, 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 wait a second. This is an entirely different customer. It's like goes against their values. It's like, and how did you manage to sort of extract from, because they say another thing, another cliche is be authentic, <laughs> right? So how can you wean authenticity from this equation when in fact it's literally turning the customer upside down? I think we you know, there's a hierarchy of messaging in anything that you do, right? And there for sure was the battle with the founder because Nina's sabse was there. It was on the label. It was Nina. Nina is the mum. It was run by her son. It was, you know, other employees were her daughters. So it really was this family business, but that was not shifting product at the end of the day. Now, we knew that we weren't going to lose the mum entirely. We knew that the mum was still going to be shopping, but we also knew that by creating a more aspirational product, that instead of just talking about, you know, the specific, you know, the specifics of what was in it or vegetables or the, you know, HPP, which was this complicated sort of preservation method, what we had to do was create an aspirational brand that spoke to the idea of health and accessibility of health for this fit fashionista type customers, the launch pad in, but then, you know, trickle down effect to mums, to dads, to whomever else, to students even, which became a really fast growing market for us. Okay. So then that's what, once you had buy-in on that, that's when you then start rolling out all the assets and the imagery exactly. and, and it was just about consistency around that, right? 100%. Okay. So let's, let's say that that was in effect, you won the war, of internal buy-in, you then started the product rollout for mm-hmm. the marketing assets. But then there's the last bit, which is brand advocacy. Uh, how do you get partnerships to speak about you in the new way? How do you get um, influencers to, to sort of talk about you? Walk us through how you engage with the rest of the world and re-educating them. Advocacy was absolutely key for us. It, it was critical. So, you know, when I came, there was a thought when I, when I came in, there was this idea to do this whole kind of, you know, January, new year, new you sort of nonsense, um, and to create our own sort of mini festival, which I ended up ripping apart because we did not yet have enough clout or recognition on our own as a brand to draw people in. So instead we spent the first quarter of that year Brand building through partnerships and relationships with other brands who did have that clout. Through the Sweaty Bettys, the Harrods, the Selfridges, the Lululemons, all of the people through media partners, making sure that we were at basically any possible event that was going to be reaching our customer segment. And then also that we were creating this amazing sort of community feel through and this family feel in many ways as well, because that was still important to us through our channels and through our activity. You know, we brought on this woman, Madeline Shaw. We didn't want to do a flash in the pan, you know, kind of one hit wonder type event where you pay God knows how much money for a celebrity to endorse your product. You get one picture and boom, you're done. This was a year long partnership where we needed Madeline to be our our voice, to be our advocate in everything from the media to her event. She ended up, you know, 
people felt that she was one of the co-founders because she was so intrinsically linked to this brand that we were putting out. So that became incredibly meaningful. We were, you know, we were very fortunate in that Madeline's star really rose alongside us. So it felt very credible as well. People have been suggesting to us, you know, work with Deliciously Ella and people like that, but she was already too big and her brand was diluted. Mm -hmm. So it's about being really, you know, considered and mindful in terms of picking that right person who was going to be a natural, real fit for us and for our brand and who, you know, we just genuinely really love working with. Mm -hmm. It was crazy. We had such big fans and people that wanted to be ambassadors for us. We'd have these girls up in Manchester who would dress up in pineapple and like fruit, outfits and send us pictures because they loved the brand so much and it was stuff like that you know we have Becky Adlington the Olympic swimmer who was taking pictures while pregnant drinking this savse and it ended up in the mail online and they thought you know they mentioned how much have they paid her we paid nothing so we, how did you get that? so I think that the thing is that these are all achievements right and, yeah and that as a listener I might be almost borderline thinking Man, it's, 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 it's Natasha's personality or it's Natasha's connections or network. And that, that, like, break it down for somebody who doesn't have your skills so that it, it's approachable as a, as a mm. process. If, if you don't have a product that is as easily Instagrammable, right? Yeah. As, as like a, a juice. Like, the, the problem is that if you're a software company or if you're whatever, it's like, how do you achieve that same level of advocacy? Without having something that's so immediately... First and foremost, create a bloody great product. And then it happens. You know, Savsi was a great product. You can be MailChimp or you can be Trello. If you create a great product, whether you're B2B or B2C, a lot of that advocacy is going to come for you. So, you know, I was very fortunate that I inherited what was a really great tasting product. And especially in that sector, taste is king. It was about taking a step back from what was you know you can get blinded by this idea of health and no sugar no this and bland and it tastes crap you might purchase it once but you're never going to repeat purchase so so product number one number two ownable assets that wasn't by chance with Savse. we created a bespoke bottle mold look at coca-cola that was a bespoke bottle mold that's, you know, gone on to be something when that's you been... you down the lingo, ownable assets includes not just packaging, but it not also just includes pack- what else? I mean, everything from you your... software examples. Let's see, like, give me a software company that has ownable assets. Oh, you're putting me on the spot. You know I'm a consumer person. I think MailChimp has insanely ownable assets from that monkey to the, you know, the the way they play on, you know, I still, whenever I think of the podcast serial, Mm -hmm. I think of them doing the MailChimp introduction. And and not only was that fun and light, but they were really smart in identifying a new channel to be able to go after people with, which was podcasts. And now, you know, you've got so many brands like batting down doors to to sponsor a podcast. And MailChimp really were one of the first to absolutely nail that. By the way, if you want to sponsor this podcast, <laughs> uh, get in touch with Yeah, speak to me. Um, we'll happy to have you sponsor the next one. Um, moving so back. product, so, ownable assets. Next, after that, what's next? Um, I think a really like defined sense of who you are. You know, for us at Savse, it was... What if you're insecure? 
What if you're insecure? Yeah, what if you're insecure? Well, your brand can't be insecure. Your brand can change, but it cannot be insecure. Because how can you possibly get people to engage or interact or buy from you if you don't know who the hell you are? I'm not saying it can't change. Your brand should change. You evolve as a business grows, especially when you're starting early out. But if you are jumping around all over the shop, it's not going to wash. So at Savsay, we defined this area of premium, but with personality. This was our position in the market. You know, when we did our our landscape work what we could see was the low end of the market you had your orangeinas your tropicanas or all these people that had you know fun kind of no clear packaging artificial looking ingredients on their front of pack and then the other end the premium end of the market you had clean white clear label but no personality so we were like well, Dan, there's, there's something we can do here and when I joined Savse I thought oh my god I've joined a brand when nobody could pronounce the bloody name. Like, what are we going to do about this? And the whole idea of having personality was, okay, well, we're going to have fun with this. And the whole idea, you know, Savse spelled S-A-V-S-E. You would not look at that and know how to pronounce it unless somebody told you. So when we think about all the problems we had with this brand around education and no sugar and not heat pasteurized, actually problem number one, if you're going to be an advocate for my brand, is you've got to tell somebody, what the hell it is. And you got to know how to pronounce it and not feel like tit when explaining it to someone or going into a shop being like, oh, hi, where can I find the Savse? Savse. So this became something that we played across. Everything from our, you know, social media would go out in the street and hold up a, a banner of how you pronounced it and would film people doing a, you know, how do you think you pronounce this and do a eh, eh, or a ding if you got it right. And across every single piece of marketing collateral from printouts to on pack itself we did sav say spelt phonetically and then that led as well into our idea for our first out of home campaign which was hard to say easy to love sav say and people remembered it people now still to this day say oh yeah the hard to say one i remember that i remember that and again it was just being consistent with this idea of being a brand that wasn't afraid to have a a bit of fun, not too much. We weren't innocent and we knew that. Innocent have absolutely nailed that kind of slightly more childish part of the market. But we, we couldn't. We couldn't possibly compete with them in that. But there was something we could own. And so, all right, so we've identified three things. Is there a fourth and a fifth? Um, in terms of... Your, your list of things that a company needs to think through as they're building out their brand. But... Otherwise, because I want to go back into this 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 creative bit, because mm. I think if I'm listening from the point of view of somebody who is not in the world that you are in, mm. I'm daunted by how you've jumped from this idea of I have this issue, which nobody understands my brand, to the conclusion being a cool, swift, like awesome looking campaign around in the unpronounceability of my name, and that link seems like a chasm for somebody who's not in the creative world or it seems like a chasm from somebody who has never dealt with that kind of creativity before and what what I'm curious as to how you help or how other people in your role help founders bridge that gap from these brand issues into actions that change that perception in the broader mind such that advocacy can happen Mm. and I think that can often be some of the problem if you do have you know to kind of to your point earlier on when you have a a consultant that comes in and gives you this amazing strategy and then you've got 
nobody there to implement it. In these instances, I was there defining the strategy and then we were implementing it. We were doing it in-house. That's not to say we didn't have people that we would turn to for advice, but it was something that we believed in so that we then could live and breathe it and think about creative solutions around it. Something that we've not touched upon and which is hugely important is storytelling and how you tell your stories and what stories you have to tell and at what point. This part for us was about how we tell the story of, you know, the fact that basically, no, we've got a bit of a stupid name and you don't know how to pronounce it. So what do we do about this? And, you know, I was actually fortunate that the founder who was so attached to that name, I mean, I was desperate to get rid of it. I was like, oh my God, like, what, what are we going to do here? But but he went, he went for it. And, you know, this idea of having fun with it because he thought it was fun and people found it fun. Um, I can't tell you how you become creative. I can't sort of put a, a finger in, in the air about how you do that. But I think when you look at your problems that you have as a business in whatever way, you think around solutions for that. I've got a really great example of, and you know, so those should be impacted with data just as much mm-hmm. as your thoughts. So at Pronto... So maybe that's number four. Maybe, maybe number four is a listing of what you understand your brand problems are. Because maybe within sure. that list, these things surface. Maybe the, the assets are played with to generate that. Maybe it's the authenticity that allows you to look at that list and say, let's play with these problems according to the first three that you mentioned earlier. Exactly. And you always, with anything, you've got to look at whether it's your hierarchy of messaging as a brand to... What's a hierarchy of messaging? So I always think there's loads of different things that you're going to want to talk about in mm-hmm. terms of what your product is, what they do. You have to think about putting those into a hierarchy depending on who you're speaking to and at what point. If I'm speaking to a retailer, the sort of immediate things I'm going to need them to understand, like the amount of money they're going to make off of the product or the fact it's going to sell, is totally different to what I need my customer to understand. So you have to, and again, to talk about MailChimp, they do an amazing job. And I would really recommend anybody go and check out their brand guidelines on their website, where they break down every single channel and how you are meant to communicate depending on which channel it is you're using. And that's super important. I mean, Savse is a great example of, to be honest, us kind of saying, we think this is going to work and let's do it. Pronto was the polar opposite because we had data. It was online. We could see what people were doing. We could see how they were behaving. So those decisions were much more around, okay, we can see that this customer has purchased protein balls. We can see from our data analysis that if you buy protein balls, you have a higher repeat purchase rate. So then it was like, right, what can we do creatively to get more people trying our protein balls? So we did a whole campaign uh, where I'd had, as part of my Feeding London um, creative, I took a photo of this woman who was a fitness blogger with a protein ball in her mouth. All the images were slightly suggestive because we wanted them to stand out. And we did a targeted Facebook campaign where we hit people who were lapsed, but who had not tried protein balls. We did it around Wimbledon and we did a hashtag balls, please um, campaign whereby if you came back to Pronto, you would get free protein balls with any of your meal. The idea being bit fun, bit tongue in cheek. We knew that if you came back and you tried the protein balls, your likelihood of repeat ordering was probably going to be higher 
and we'd get customers back. So, you know, it totally depends on the kind of levers you want to pull when and why for the sort of marketing activity that I think you need to be looking at. When we did, you know, at, at Savsay, to go back to that example, we did a big uh, nationwide uh, bus and train and experiential activity. The main reason we did that was because when I went into the pitch with Sainsbury's to get the listing, we dropped it into conversation as a, yeah, we're going to do out-of-home advertising. And so it's going to get people into your store to buy us. And they were like, oh, great. None of your competitors have said they're going to do that. And then lo and behold, we got the listing in Sainsbury's. It wasn't that I 100% thought we were going to be able to drive, you know, re- like heaps of sales off the back of it, but it got us that listing, which then meant we would be able to drive sales and we'd be able to support those sales by people seeing the brand everywhere. So again, you know, you talk about hierarchy messaging. It's also knowing what levers you need to pull when and why. Seed camp's a really good example of that. When we were, you know, to talk about from a, I guess, communications point of view and some of the things that we've done, when we were in the process of raising our fourth fund, we put out a story around the fact that we had returned our first fund 2x. That at that point was a really compelling message and it showed the proof and validity and that we knew what we were doing to help support us in raising that fund. You know, it's not, it, it totally depends on what you need to do when and why on the sort of marketing activity I would suggest and, and your focus. For those that are listening, I think one of the things that are really um, gives me empathy for anyone going through this this process of taking a brand and trying to amplify it through marketing, targeted marketing. You know, we've gone through the seed camp brand evolution and it's hard. I mean, I can't say that it's, if you, if if Natasha did a pop quiz of every single team member to see if we have consistent messaging, I I think at least one of us would fail. And I think it's, it's sometimes brands are, are complex and they're difficult. And I think that it's, this is one of those things that is both art and science. If you had to give this a percentage art and a percentage science, what would you say? I think there's a degree of it depending on the brand and the stage you're at. I would probably say like 70% art, 30% science. From my experience, Seedcamp was a really different beast. And actually the hardest brand I think I've I've worked on so far because there was so much legacy there. You know, and, and when you're a startup, you've got everything new and everything to play with and, and less of the, the hangover of what it is or what it was. Mm. Which, you know, people when like, Opal Fruits change their name to Starburst or whatever, you know, when there's a big consumer following or people feel very passionately about your brand, making big changes can be much harder than doing it at the early stage. Hmm. Yeah, no, fair enough. Now, one of the things that I want to touch on before we, we start wrapping up is um, you, you help a lot of our companies with not just their marketing, not just their customer uh, identification, not just their branding but also with communications. Mm-hmm. And communications is one of these words that means a lot and a little. Mm. Um, in the broadest sense of the word, I guess it means any external facing transmission that is not necessarily marketing, but it can be. It's and internal I'm, facing too. Internal facing too. So walk us through what that means. How is that different than marketing? And how do you deal with it, train for it, uh, hire for it? and uh, manage it differently than you would marketing. Mm. So one of the repeated problems, again, that I see from startups I speak to is 
we need press. We need press now. Okay, take a step back. Cool. What's the story? What What's your brown about? Uh, I don't know. I think we're a bit this, a bit that. So for me, it goes back to this idea of nailing that brand strategy first and foremost, and then thinking about the stories that you want to tell when and why. It's really the same thing. It's, you know, I'm a new startup that's just got investment. I want to show people that we're here and I want to start to pique the interest of investors for our next round of funding, which is probably going to be coming around the corner. Cool. So you need to do a investment focused tech release that talks about the business, why you're credible, the validity you've got with the sort of people you've got around the table now and the size of the market that you're going after. That's not going to drive you customers though. And I think this is one of the real problems I see over and over again when a startup is throwing money at some, you know, freelance PR person or even, you know, wasting money on an agency really early doors when they're not clear on what the reality of what they can deliver is at the different stages and why. So I think nailing that is super important. The PR agency or whomever you're working with needs to understand your brand and your story first. So you have to help them on that. It, it can only come from you, right? They're an extension of you and you've got to let them in. I've seen a lot of times when people try and hold these people at a distance or don't give them the information like, They're there to help you. Let them help you by giving them the best information. But also don't be mad if, you know, you don't all of a sudden have a kind of 100% increase on hits on your website because it's, it's impossible. You know, my career started out in PR. I moved away from it because it was so intangible. You know, you would sort of make up these numbers that, well, the return on investment was of this piece of coverage we got was three times, you know, the media value of what a page of advertising would cost. And then you make up that if the distribution of this paper has X amount of numbers, then times that by three, because probably three people will read every one paper. I, it was meaningless. So again, with the press, you have to take a step back, know what you need to happen when and why is it that I'm trying to drive sales. So I need to be targeting the trade press for my industry or I need people to believe us to be credible. So I need to be putting out thought leadership, whether that's across LinkedIn and my own channels or, you know, leveraging my existing base or through it, third party and press. Um, and then just thinking about, I guess, your connections and your network and who you can pull in within that, because the reality is there'll be someone that can help or somebody that's willing to talk to you and to help. All right. So after that, what, what would you recommend? So obviously they're there to help. You need to listen to them. You need to have your brand identity definitely nailed down before you engage with them. Otherwise you're wasting both your time and their time. What else do, do brands need to consider or that they get wrong when they approach comms firms or, or somebody internally to, to help yeah. them? And again, how is that either an amplification of marketing or something entirely separate? I think one, just assuming that anybody is going to give as much of a shit about your company as you do is like the biggest problem. Um, people get so emotionally involved in their own thing or think that everything they have to say is so important, they can lose perspective. Having a clear brief and, you know, defined you know, expectations on both sides of what you think is achievable, whether that is we want to see X amount of do downloads of our apps or this is our absolute top tier target title that we want to get into. Just sort of going broad brush, get us coverage, 
isn't going to help anyone. So set those parameters because then it's really easy to say, to see if somebody fails to meet them or not. Um, and then I think as well, knowing the balance between what's news, what's reactive potential stuff, you know, if there's opportunities that are being fed to you as a client from your agency or your freelance or whomever, they're saying, this has just happened, we need comment now, you have to be willing to do it now. Because if they're feeding you stuff and you're not able to be quick and responsive, you're going to lose it. So you have to as well know, as an individual or a company, whomever, are you realistically going to have the capacity to do those sort of things? If you're not, don't waste your time. Don't worry about it. But at least you know and you've been clear that if somebody at the drop of the hat is like, I need a response to this in 30 minutes, can you do it or not? Um, and then it's thinking as well about your own milestones and how you can communicate those, whether that's creatively, it's a, a story as well as an activity or a video or an installation or whatever, um, and who you want to get it. Press like exclusives. So, you know, knowing the balance and how you have to play that whole game as well. It's chicken and mouse. You know, we hate having to speak to the press. They hate having to speak to us, but you know, it's this symbiotic relationship. We really need each other at the end of the day. Um, it's building the relationships with the ones that you trust, offering them your stuff first, giving them ample time to be able to run it. And if they don't respond to you, I'm always super clear. If I'm going to someone, I'm like, I'm coming to you first. If you want it, I need a response by this time. If I don't get one, I'm going elsewhere. That way you've been really clear. You've given them an opportunity and then it gives you scope and leg room to tap to elsewhere. I always try and have a kind of five day minimum lead up of a story that I'm going to be doing just to make sure I can cover all areas as best as possible. Mm. All right. Well, I mean, I feel like there's so much more to cover. And, and unfortunately, I think maybe we might have to like break this up into like Chance. Star Wars episodes six, seven, eight prequels. We can do prequels. The story. This of is where I admit PR that agency. I don't watch Star Wars. Oh, really? Oh, jeez. Oh, my <laughs> God. Oh, boy. Well, how about this? How about we wrap up with a view of how you would recommend a founder to to initiate the process of tackling these big issues. Like you've, you've worked with enough founders now that, you know, to some extent you've, you've helped expedite this discovery of what brand is, but the process of setting things up in a way that allows them to become independent of somebody like you Mm -hmm. is probably the biggest leap because with, with this realization that it's 80% art, in 20% science, I forget what you said, but it almost requires an artist. And sometimes founders don't have an artist in-house. So what is what are the things that a non-artist can do to initiate a process that maybe at the end of it, there's something that's good enough until you have enough money to engage an artist? Yeah. I mean, I think first and foremost, you just have to dedicate the time to thinking about it. Nobody wants to think about it because to your point earlier, what Sword said... It's hard. It's really hard. I have a very simple template that I've created for our startups for how they can go about thinking about that internally themselves without driving themselves crazy, but just with some questions and some points to lead them to certain discoveries or things they might not have been 
aware about and I'm super happy to make that available as, as part of this this podcast and include a link for that but it's a starter it gives you some direction you don't need to be spending you know god knows whatever thousands on a shiny new logo uh, you know new color identity that is not your brand your brand is what you live and breathe and say and communicate and feel and express and you guys have to put some thought into that and the type of brand that you want to be at the beginning you can bring in experts later down the line or you just bring in someone that's really hungry to do something you know I was not a marketer I was a comms professional I'd done strategic planning I'd worked in-house I'd done agency but I was hungry enough and I had enough ideas to get stuck in and make something happen and you know Hiring, that's a whole nother thing, but it's something, and how you hire and build out your marketing team is something I speak to people all about, you know, our company's about all the time. Bring on board people that are going to live and breathe your brand and that can grow into it as much as your brand grows itself. Cool. Well, I look forward to having uh, that list online and sharing it and people can learn more about you and, and some of the other posts that you've written because I know that you, you have a medium blog that you share quite frequently. So we always like to end with at least one, like, out of the blue question. I'll refrain from seat camp uh, jokes, and I'll also refrain from Star Wars <laughs> trivia, since you seem not to know those. All right, I'll give you a hard one. Uh-oh. Maybe it's maybe I knew you'd give me a hard I'll give one. You a hard one. All right. Wait. So we um, we look back at, at history, and there are some things that we look and think, "Oh my goodness, how did we let this happen?" And it doesn't necessarily have to be. Um, civil rights violations. It can be anything silly. It can be like how during you know the 80s we just had these gas guzzling cars and we didn't think twice about them. What what do you think we'll look back 50 years from now? Whether it be social media, whether it be digital products, whether it be things we eat, our food, our ecology, whether it be our politics. What do you think we'll look back on 50 years from now and think, oh my goodness, how did we get it so wrong? I think the social media point has to be the one. How did we allow ourselves to give and share so much and also pin so much of our importance and self-worth on something that fundamentally is not real? There you have it, guys. Profound statement to end this episode one of eight uh, with our very own Natasha Litton. Thanks for joining us, Natasha. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and leave us a read with your thoughts on our show.